Good morning. If you're able, would you please stand for our time of scripture reading this morning? Advent is an annual season of patient waiting and hopeful expectation. The word Advent means coming, and as we await Christmas Day, we remember the coming of Christ as a baby, and we await the second coming of Christ our King. Each week, as we light the candles in the Advent wreath, we allow ourselves to reset our minds and our desires. The world invites us into a time of rushing. Advent invites us into a time of waiting. The world invites us into a time of excess. Advent invites us into a time of anticipation. The world invites us into a time of stress. Advent invites us into a time of stillness. Please join me in the following responsive reading as we focus on how Jesus, the scepter, brings joy. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those in a dark land, on them the light has shone. Jesus, the scepter, brings joy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Jesus, the scepter, brings joy. Just as God had promised to Samuel, David, and Solomon, the angel of the Lord spoke to Mary and said, The Lord God will give your child the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. The king's reign would never end, and his kingdom would never cease. Jesus, the scepter, brings joy. As Christ, our good and perfect king, brings life and flourishing to his kingdom, his presence fills us with joy. Yes, you will fill me with joy in your presence, O God, because Jesus, the scepter, brings joy. Lord, you are the light of the world, and by your grace you have come to dwell among us. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So um, you wouldn't know this at second service. Um, this is the most difference in numbers of people at services we've had um, since I've been here at High Point. It was really stuffed in here first hour. So if you're claustrophobic, this is the right service. Um, but overall, there's about 100 to 120 new people at High Point in the last two months. And so that's not why I'm telling you. That's great. It's great. Yeah. If you're new, they're clapping for you. Okay. So um, I just want to tell you, just make sure you have a couple conversations with people you haven't met before. Because listen, I know for some of us, we want the church to stay small because we know everybody, we love everybody. And I don't think that's unhealthy, actually. I think it's okay for you to have a manageable number of relationships, and right? But like, you don't get to have border policy in church, okay? Like, that's not something we get to do. And you, you're going to feel— you're going to feel a little bit like the third child when the fourth child is born, you know? It's it, like you don't want them, right? My, my mom, my mom said that when they brought me home from the hospital, they asked my brother, there's only one other kid in my family. Do you want to take him home? And my brother went, no. <laughs> it turns out he was right, you know? So anyway, please be sure to welcome people and love them and invite them in and at least have meaningful conversations where you listen to them 
for a few minutes. Because listen, there are people that nobody has listened to them for months, for two minutes. Okay, so let's at least show the love of Christ in that way, and hopefully you'll get to know him too. Okay, and if you're new, no one's talking to you, come talk to me, or boy, he loves to talk to people. So, all right, he's from Texas. He's a warm fella. Okay, um, I don't mind waiting. I do not like waiting around. Okay, and um, Advent is a time where we actually celebrate or we reflect on the fact that as a people, we are waiting. We're waiting in a time of incompleteness before the first coming of Christ and his return, and we are meant to be waiting, but we are not meant to be waiting around. In, um, in Luke, uh, a passage that we looked at earlier this year, Jesus says this to his people. He says, Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. That's a direct command to us. Be ready. Like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he'll dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose masters find them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have, the house would not have been broken into. Okay, so he says twice in just a few verses, it will be good for the servant who is watching when the master comes. The first time he gives the positive promise that goes with it. The master is going to come and he's going to dress like a servant. He's going to let you sit at his table and he's going to serve you like you serve him. Utterly, completely for your joy and enjoyment. Right? That's good. And then negatively he says, it will be good. Even if he comes in the second and third watch tonight, if he shows up at 3 a.m. and you're ready, that'll be good for you. So be ready. Right? I, when I was in seminary, I was a third shift security guard. I, had, I can't tell you how many church shirts I had to throw away because I had a highlighter, like big blotches of highlighter, because I'd be trying to read my not entirely riveting seminary books with my highlighter in my hand and just trying to stay awake for my employer. And the highlighter would kind of come down and it would just— Make me yellow. <laughs> right? And so he—and he's like, listen, if anybody whose house has ever been broken into knew exactly when the thief was going to come, it wouldn't have gotten broken into. The fact that you don't know what's happening or when it's going to end or when Christ is going to return is the reason why you hang in there in vigilance. Now the problem is this. The waiting in this itself is a metaphor. Because the Bible makes really clear and Jesus makes really clear waiting for Jesus isn't waiting around for Jesus. Right? He makes this a really stark example of this in his ascension in Acts chapter 1. Right? He tells his people, he says, listen, you're going to be my witnesses in, G in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then he ascends into heaven, right? And everybody watches him go up, and like, either right when he disappears or right before he disappears, all of a sudden there's two angels standing next to them, and they don't realize they appear because they're looking up, and they go, they go, men of Galilee, why are you looking into the sky? And you can, I mean, you can imagine like, Judas the Zealot there being like, because Jesus is flying. <laughs> That's why we're looking into the sky. Jesus is flying, right? And they—and—but he says, Benigali, why do you look at—right? This same Jesus, just as he left, he will return, right? But the, the point is, let's get moving, okay? Jesus—like, they're literally still looking up, and God sends angels to say, hey, why are you looking at the sky? You see the point there? 
It's a show me, don't tell me point. It's an important point. Waiting for Jesus does not mean waiting around. Apparently, it doesn't mean waiting around for one minute looking upward, right? All of a sudden, it's like, they're there. Let's roll. They go back to Jerusalem. They play, pray. The Holy Spirit comes. Off it goes. Because waiting for Jesus is not the same as waiting around for Jesus, right? And so part of what this series is about, Joy for the World, Joy to the World, which is out of this book, Partly Joy for the World by Greg Forster, is about our stewardship, like our, the joy that we are supposed to bring the world as we're here. Because we're not waiting around for Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus, but we got stuff to do, and we are supposed to be for the joy of the world, right? So the first week, so we've taken the sermon titles out of this, the hymn uh, or the carol, Joy to the World. So the first week was Every Heart Prepare Him Room, because if we don't have real truthful piety and devotion to Jesus— that is warmed in real spiritual fervor, there, there's nothing to come out of us. There's no spring is worth—you can't cart water from a spring where there's no water, okay? It's got to start with us and our hearts and our hearts with Jesus. Hit the fullness of Christ in us. The second thing is, um, let men their songs employ. Like, this, it's got to come out of us, right? And it's, it should come out of us kind of like a song. Not designed to take control of other people or coerce them, but in word and music, Right? Conviction and beauty together, like a song, persuading the hearts and consciences of others. That's how the gospel is supposed to flow out of us for the joy of the world, right? And then last week, um, Lloyd talked about let the earth receive her king. Meaning that, Je listen, Jesus isn't just, just the Savior sacrifice for your sins. That's not—he is that. He's, that is, he's never going to be less than that, but he's a lot more than that. Right? The Jesus who is your Savior isn't also just the baby Jesus. You be, oh, baby Jesus. That's it. He grows up into the King Jesus he is born as, and he is prophet, priest, and king. And he calls us into roles similar to that. Because the prophet's job is to tell the truth and to speak the truth in the world and call people to believe it. The priest's job is to lead people to right devotion of heart, right emotion, and to care about the right things. And so Jesus, of those three roles, the main one Jesus is fulfilling right now is that he is our high priest at the throne of God. Why the high priest? Well, he's the top one, but there's always under priests. And Exodus prophesied that we—or Genesis, sorry, prophesied that we would be a nation of kings and priests. You and I are called—the we reason why Christians say the priesthood of all believers is that we are all in that role in Christ. And our job is to not just through Christ to come to him in right devotion— Part of our job is to spread his priesthood as his priests, which is our job is to help draw people to right devotion, to stir up in them good devotion. And then as king, he is the steward, the ruler over all of creation. And we are his understewards over the scope which he's given us for us to govern in that for the most fruitfulness and flourishing we can, right? And so this week, um, sorry, this week we're looking at the lyric, he comes to make his blessings flow. And the thing you repeat in that verse is, as far as the curse is found. And how far is the curse found? Everywhere. Right. In the fourth century, there was a new emperor of Rome who did not want Rome to be Christian. And he was trying to make—he's called Julian the Apostate. And um, he was trying to make Rome not Christian anymore, and he had a difficult time doing it. And he wrote to one of his associates, he said, the Christian faith has been specially advanced 
through their loving service rendered to strangers, and through their care for the burial of the dead. Why burial of the dead matters is because most of the dead he's talking about are people who died of communicable diseases, like the plague, and Christian— and, and so caring for the dead meant that you could get a communicable disease that could kill you. And so when people died of things like the pl plague, often pagans would just leave them there to rot because it's not worth it, right? And so— or for the dead, it's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans—he's referring to Christians there—care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to, to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. You see, the thing that Julian complained about, he's the emperor. He has all of the political power in Rome. All of the legions are at his disposal. And yet, he can't stop the influence of the church and of Christ. You see, it wasn't because we controlled the legions or that we controlled the institutes of power. It was because the Christians employed the song of Christ. They lived beautifully and convictionally in ways that were sufficiently sacrificial that they won the hearts of the people of Rome by doing the things that no one else would do. Burying the sick dead and caring for the poor, all of their own poor and other poor as well. I, I don't know if you know this, but at High Point Church, like something like less than 20% of the money that you give specifically to go to the poor goes to people at High Point because all of the needs at High Point are usually taken care of before we even find out about them at the church office. And it's not that people at High Point never have any problems. I, I find about them usually afterwards. They're like, oh, my small group did this, or oh, so-and-so did this, or so-and-so let me work this job at their business until I got another job. And like, people at the church just take care of each other's problems because they trust each other because we're, you're part of the family of God. And so, and yet the church gives tens of thousands of dollars to give to the poor. And so most of the money that we give to the poor over the course of the year, we don't give to our own poor. Their lives were beautiful, and the, it wasn't just that they were full of Christ and that they were living lives that were fruitful. That fruitfulness was going out to non-Christians, into the culture and into the society in a way that was bringing flourishing to them. And what Forster argues in this book, and I think he's arguing it because Scripture, I think, does teach it, is that that's, that's what we're called to do, that the songs that we're, we employ have to go out from us and they have to go out from us into every relationship and every institution in the world. Now you'd be like, institution? Institutions are just formalized relationships. Right? There's something about a relationship that people want to formalize, and so they make an institution. Right? That's what the church is. There's a spiritual relationship we all have in Christ, and the institution of the local church that is High Point Church is just a formalization to try to make sure we do all the stuff we do in as fruitful and orderly way as possible. Right? And so God's joy for the world must flow out from us to every relation institution in the world, okay? The first thing that we have to grapple with when we talk about this is, do you really want this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God wants the joy and blessing for an unbelieving world? Now, on one level, we might say, well, of course I do. I'm a good person, right? At least in our virtue signaling, we want to, we'd want to be like, of course, I want everybody to be happy. I'm not a mean person. I'm not a Vikings fan, you know? Just kidding. It's a joke. Come on. Okay. Be because, right, like Jesus says in the Bible that the world is going to hate you. Right? The, the world in its power structures, at least, and when it's committed to itself, isn't going to like the truths that we speak in the office of prophet. And so they're not going to like you. And so you might not want their blessing just out of spite. You might just be like, look, they, if they're going to hate us, they should wallow in the curse. Right? Now, okay, that's a little shallow, but it's real. 
may be realer than your belief that you want them all blessed, right? The second is out of justice. Like, people in the world, all people, but people in the world too, do awful stuff that really ought to have penalties. And it's, it's mean and terrible. Like, you might be like, well, not me, but there's probably somebody else you wish. Like, there's probably people you wish would die because they cut you off in traffic, you know what I mean? Which isn't justice, by the way. But there's this impulse for justice where we wish things that people deserve would happen to them. And, the, and that's actually not vengeance. Like, there's a level of justice where people do deserve recompense for their behavior. Of course, so do we. Right? It was—our our forgiveness was costly. And then the third is you could want it for gracious reasons. Right? Like, sometimes people are sufficiently hard-headed that they need to get hit in the forehead with a sledgehammer. Like, they were—the pain is required for them to recognize what's happening to them and for them to turn around. And so we might, we might say, well, you know, it's really for their good. You know, they really should— if, Like, if they're going to not follow Jesus and they're going to follow the ways of the world— and they're going to part company from reality in doing so, that's going to produce certain results. They should probably have to deal with those results, right? And if we are filling their lives with joyful blessing and stuff, that's going to like slow the healing process rather than help them come towards it. Now, the only place in the Bible that I know of, okay, in which, especially the New Testament, where that seems to be the idea that like let the person wallow in their sin so that they'll be destroyed by it, so that they'll come to Jesus, is for somebody who is already a Christian, is part of the local church, knows what it means to follow God, and then walks away from it for some sort of notorious public sin. In the case in 1 Corinthians 5, it's that he shacks up with his stepmom. Right? And, and Paul's like, yeah, you, you need to like put him out of the church so that he can like sort it out. Okay? Like, because that's, you, otherwise, you're saying it's okay and it, it's confusing the issue. You need to clarify the issue, right? But he doesn't seem to anywhere say that about people who aren't believers. I, I can't think of anywhere in the Bible where God is like, this is what I want. What I want is for you not to bless anyone so that they can suffer maximally so that they'll turn to me. God says that it does happen that when people sin, there are consequences that come into their life and hopefully those have redemptive effects. But he never tells us to encourage it, and he never tells us not to mitigate it. He always assumes we're coming in and trying to mitigate and bless and help people in the stewing of the curse, inviting them positively because of the joy of God out of it to something better. That's our job. Our job is not school moms. Our job is like ambulance drivers and triage nurses and farmers and hosts. Now, Part of the confusion of this is, it's easy to think, you know, if God just would be smart about this, why not let the church be, like, really separate from the world, and let us, like, be the city on a hill, the shining light, like, where it's beautiful in God, and full of his fullness, and, like, we'll shine the light, and then pull us totally out of the world so we don't have to deal with those people, and then they'll, like, degrade and, like, be terrible to each other, and then they'll be maximally wicked, and then the contrast will be super stark, and then they'll all come to Jesus. And um, here's what I want you to do. If you have a Bible, I want you to hold it in your hands. And if you don't, get one around you if you can, or co-hold it with somebody next to you. I want everybody to hold a Bible for just like 20 seconds, okay? I'm sorry if you don't like being told what to do. Just if you'll go with me, great. Otherwise, just don't make a scene, okay? So are you holding the Bible? Okay, now look at the pages of the Bible, the thickness of the Bible. Right? Just look at it sideways. We're not even going to open it, okay? It's a Bible. Bible truth without opening it, okay? The first two-thirds of that book, 
are about a number of things. But one of the things the first two-thirds of that book is about is that that system does not work. Okay? Doesn't work. The whole Testament says lots of other things, but one of the things it says is that system doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? Because the Christians, the people of God, aren't good enough, and the people who don't believe, the world, isn't bad enough. Okay? Because the Christians, because we won't really deal the death blow to sin, to the flesh, we're not nearly as good as we could be. We're not as full in Christ as we could be. We're not as free from sin as we could be. We're not as loving and self-sacrificial as we could be. We're not that fantastic. We have not yet embodied what has been pronounced upon us in Christ. We, we may well be saved, but we're not, we're not angels, okay? And then secondly, the world's not as bad, that bad. They're made in the image of God. They're always going to be better than their philosophy, and they can investigate the world and find out many truths without finding the truth. And many of those truths that they can find out are moral truths, and they can approximate them sort of, and so they're not maximally bad in any meaningful sense. In fact, observably, there are some that are better than Christians. Not uncommonly. And for many of us, a lot of this relates to our temperament. You can have a, like, like a scurvy little begrudging Christian person who has like a nasty little temperament and they become a Christian and they get a lot better, but they're not as nice as this other person with a really nice temperament that won't come to Jesus. Which is why, I think, Paul told Timothy when he led the church, he didn't say, let the church see that you're perfectly godly. He said, make sure everybody in the church can see your progress. Can, they can see in your life the difference that Jesus makes over time. How he's changing you. But that, for that to do anything for people, they have to observe you closely. They can't be looking at a city on a distant hill. They have to be able to see you really close. And so God has for now more than 2,000 years used the mechanism of exile— to both bless the world and purify his people. It happened first with the exile of Babylon, where the Jewish people were taken from their city and taken as slaves to Babylon. You can read about this in um, Jeremiah 29. A lot of us have, like Jeremiah 29, 11, because it's a great self-help verse. For I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and to give you a hope and a future. It's beautiful out-of-context verse. Um, but it really—I mean, that's really true about God, right? That verse isn't about you, but the idea that God wants the best for all people, and he is exerting and executing and working for the best of his people, those who have come to this, is true, right? Now, he might do it through cancer, so just be careful what you think that means. But he absolutely is working all things for your good if you trust him, okay? And for the flourishing of all people, too. And so in this passage, what happens is God says, you're going into exile and you're going to live among these Babylonians that are completely opposed to everything you believe in, but are the most successful people on planet Earth. Okay? Because if you maintain who you are in God, it will be because you choose to every single day. Right? I think that that's fairly true in Madison. I think that's true where Brooks and Lydia are in New York City. In places where the world is embodying its maximal success— and if you enter in as a Christian and you don't give yourself over to be a Babylonian, it's because you choose to every single day. Because there are plenty of benefits to giving yourself over and plenty of derision if you don't. And so when I was in Florida where Christendom in America still holds a little bit, we had a lot more nominal people, people who were Christians kind of name only, because being a Christian got you somewhere in the South. 
Which surprised me because I had lived in New York and Chicago before that. Where there were hardly any people who weren't serious Christians because it got you nothing in North Chicago. And it got you nothing in the New York universities where I was working. Right? And the same is pretty true in Madison. It's, it's not super common that I counsel believers that are part of the local church and have been for a while who are just kind of wishy-washy about their faith. You wouldn't come. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be part of the church. That's what living in Babylon does to you. The people who kill the name of Jesus because they're followers of Jesus in name only, they don't come. And they're less and less associated with the name of Jesus, which is good. Those of us who stay are constantly in the fire of trial, which makes us stronger, makes us deal with our problems, makes us choose every day who we serve. It's rejuvenating and it holds back our degradations and it, it tends to reform and keep us reforming by being in exile. As long as we're not creating our own little refugee camps. As long as we really are dispersed in the world. And then in the world, if Jesus is changing us, even though we're not the perfect shining city on a hill, if Jesus is changing us, we're in close enough observable proximity to the world that they can see what's happening. In order for people to see something in you and for you to be something that they can see, you've got to be kind of close to them. They have to see you over time. And then they can see the change if they're willing to. And then you can speak to them messages fitted for particular moments, which is what they require. And so by God using exile to disperse people into the secular city, while calling us to remain our, in our cultural identity in Christ, he both renews and rejuvenates us and reaches those he wishes to reach among them. And there, I think one of the reasons why he spent more than a thousand years showing us that the other way doesn't work is so that we would accept his program now. This is the best way to do it. I know it's hard. It's really hard. It is the best way to do it. And it's what he's doing in Christ in these days. Okay. In John's gospel— Jesus tells, in his prayer to the Father, he tells his disciples what he's doing. And he says that his prayer is not that God would take them out of the world, but that he'd protect them from the evil one. Now that's really important, okay? Because Jesus could have said, God, Father, please protect these believers from the world. He could have said that. He'd already prophesied that the world was going to hurt the believers. But he didn't say that. He said, protect them from the evil one. Which in this case means Satan or spiritual, demonic, devil, like beings that are not physical beings. They are not unbelievers or governments or anything like that. They're intelligent, spiritual beings that actually exist, right? And he's saying, protect, Father, you protect the believers from them, not the world. Knowing very well that we'd be persecuted by the world, that we'd be martyred by the world, that we'd be hated by the world. But he doesn't pray for us to be protected from the world. It's intentional. And then he says that we are sent to the world. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We're not just not of the world, but in the world. That could just be circumstantial. He says we're no more of the world than he is of the world. That's not very much of the world. And we're, we're not just in the world. We are sent into the world. And listen, listen. He says— that it is as you sent me. So imagine 
God the Father sending the eternal Son into a rebellious creation. And the enormous drama of that. And he's saying, as that happened, so I send them, all who believe in me, into the world. Should give some dignity to our feeling of being sent. Okay? Now, as, as Forster goes through this in the book, one of the things he looks at is he says, okay, so how does, in order for the blessings of the song of God to flow into the world, for our fullness in Christ to come forward in fruitfulness and faith, to move out into the flourishing of the world, how does that happen? He says, one of the things that has to happen in the mind of Christ, we have to understand very differently all the social relationships and institutions of the world. Right? Jesus says in Mark 10, remember, the disciples are saying, Jesus, when you become king, I want to be the prime minister, and I want my brother to be your second in command, right? And Jesus is like, man, you guys have this thing so wrong. He's like, okay, the Gentiles, they have this power structure, and they lord it over these people, and they, they have this whole thing. He's like, it's not supposed to be that way with you believers. It's with you, my people, right? I came to give my life as a ransom. <laughs> like, we came to serve and to be low. And like, our, the, we, we don't just have different people in power, right? Like, think about it this way. Let's say for, I don't know, three days, America was like, okay, let's have three days. Every different sort of group of people gets like to run America for three days. Okay, that would be kind of chaotic, right? But like, if it was the Christian's turn, okay, and you were in charge of how that was going to go, who was going to be in charge of what? What would you do, right? See, a lot of people would be like, I'd appoint new judges for half of the Supreme Court, and I'd get, right? Like, they'd, they would like put different people in power. And you see, I, I don't think that's what Jesus would do. I think he'd change it. He'd, he'd burn the whole structure. He'd do something totally different. He would look at the way people are meant to relate to each other and what institutions and social relationships they should have, and he would change them dramatically. He, he, he doesn't—you see, one of the things we struggle with, one of the reasons why the joy of God doesn't flow out to all people through us is that we still buy into half of the world's game, and then we try to change where the pieces go after we've bought into the game. It's like getting a chessboard and all the pieces already, and you accept the chessboard and you accept the pieces, and you're like, okay, this is the game we're playing. I'm going to do it in a Christian way. Instead of being like, I don't accept that board. I don't accept those pieces. I'm, it's a different game. Playing a different, I don't play that game, right? It's like Quelf. I ain't playing that, you know? And so Forster says some of the biggest areas of our life, we have to completely rearrange the way we understand them from the ground up, from the very bottom, so that we're, we don't play the world's game at all, okay? And so I'm not going to spend much time on these. Uh, our plan is to do uh, an Engage and Quit podcast on each of these three chapters. Um, and so first, in relationship to sexuality and family, come to the sexuality conference on February 15th and 16th, because we will talk a lot more about this in a lot of different ways with a lot of different speakers, and you will love it, okay? And be convicted by it, probably. One of the things that—so I've probably—I can't tell you how many thousands of pages I've read on se human sexuality, okay? And both from a theological perspective and biological—all kinds of different perspectives. Because when you're a pastor, you end up dealing with this a lot. And Forrester's chapter on this is maybe the best, best 30 pages I've ever read. He did the best job of just not playing the game at all. And one of the ways he says this is he says, listen, even as Christians— we look at sex the way our culture does, like materialists. And so when you do that, it basically sets all the rules of the game for you and all the ways you can talk about things for you. 
He, he said, think about this. We act as though everything related in our sexuality all sort of feeds into the act of sexual intercourse itself. He's like, but think about it. Does it? He, he, all the flirting, all the dressing, all the preening, all the conversations, all the dance, all the call and like intrigues and like everything, attractions and does it all lead to that or does it all really kind of lead to other things? Is that just the consummation of a bunch of other things? Right? And he's like, if you, if you think about it, you could easily imagine human sexuality in almost the way materialists do, that the act of sex means nothing. You should just do whatever you want. It's no big deal. But nobody behaves that way. We've been materializing sexuality for decades, and people still love love songs. Right? We still don't really have a genre of mere sex songs. We have a couple genres that are getting pretty close. Okay? But even in a lot of them, there's still discussions of power, and even like in like songs that like seem to treat sex as merely a biological interaction of attractions, there are still subtexts of desire and power and status wrapped up in it. Because it's not the act we're really after. It's the, it's the adoration. It's the respect. It's the position. It's the longing. It's the belonging. It's the um, insoluble bond. It's the transcendent feeling. It's the worship. It's all of that wrapped up in the transcendental, spiritual nature of our sexualities. They're in everything. Our sexuality is maybe the second most fundamental thing about us, besides the image of God itself, that we're humans. Your sexuality lays like a collar or a blanket over everything else in your life. It, it, and therefore, its degradation affects everything in your life. That's one of the places where the world is right about it. I think you could argue fairly that in a desire, in the ebb and flowing of modesty, there have been periods where the church has not wanted to talk deeply about human sexuality. And in that time, in one part of American history, the world said, wait, no, we got to talk about this way more. We're not happy about what's happening. And so all these other, there's been so many movements related to sexuality, whether, whether sexual revolution or feminism or lots of other things, the LGBT movement, lots of things have been tried to say, we need to reframe this. But the problem is almost all of those movements were already so situated in materialism that they were so limited in their resources that they came up to conclusions that we either disagree with or we agree and disagree with. Because once we look at sex materialistically, we think about it merely biologically, then all of its problems are health problems. And we—, we Without even thinking about it, we enter into the medicalization of sex because it's just physical, right? And we're just biological beings. All our thoughts and feelings are just our brains firing, right? Which that whole discussion leaves out all the most interesting things to talk about in relationship to sexualities, like commitment and choice and responsibility. Do you have responsibilities to someone you have sex with? Yes or no? Are there things you ought not do? Yes or no? How sacred is a thing like marriage? Would we invent it if it didn't exist? Can we— Right? Even within the church, even within married monogamous couples who have healthy sex lives, 
there's still a whole lot of just pleasure exchange that's agreed upon that's even semi-servant oriented that, that is still about pleasure exchange more than it is about loving the other person as an individual, wishing to be with that person, and then doing whatever comes naturally and enjoying it. Such that even within Christian circles, you get a lot of discussions about, well, like, what kind of things can we do to spice things up when that basically misunderstands the whole concept of human union? Where you exist in enough emotional, transcendental, and spiritual adoration of each other that it creates a worship event between the two that no spicing is necessary. The thing's already an explosion of flavor. You just—when you cut off your tongue— you have trouble tasting things. Right? And so, you see, and part of what happens is then Christians who are struggling with this want to figure places like clear, like a clear problem. Like, what can we really dig our teeth into? The problem is we don't want to do anything that is rampant among us. And so we tend to focus on LGBT issues and sexual minorities. Right? Because like, dang it, we know we don't believe in gay marriage. Right? Like, we basically agree with them about almost everything. I mean, have you noticed this? Like, we're kind of cross about gay marriage, but like, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think should happen, right? We basically believe people should be able to make their own decisions. They have to decide what they do according to their own conscience. People should be able to make what contracts in a free society that they believe they, they should make. We, you know, you and I might not think it maybe maybe should be called something different than marriage, but we don't own the English language, problematically, right? So like, maybe they're going to use that word and we can't do anything about it, so we add covenantal to the front of ours, okay. But like, we basically agree with them about everything they want to do. We might say you shouldn't do that, but the structure in which there's freedom and dignity and choice, like, we're non-coercive people. The non-coercion of Christianity is much deeper than the social policy implications of Christianity. You know, we do disagree. They're supposed to. All the stuff we do. Like, where is the true and horrific society-wide degradations of the misuse of our sexuality? It's favoritism, adulteries, illegitimacy, rejection of marriage, divorce, our use of pornography— our athletification of sex in marriages that degrade its process because we're trying to do a pleasure exchange that we're not even really made for. And like, all of that, all of that we could speak into. But all of that we could only speak into if we believed that sex was not materialist. If we believed that it was covenantal, that it was transcendental, that it was permanent. Only if we believed in what Jesus taught about sexuality could we possibly reject the whole game and speak a message of, to the world that they, a lot of people in the world would recognize as joy. A lot of people would say, dude, that's right. That's what it's supposed to be like. That, like, yes, I don't like some of the stuff they think, but man, like, that's pretty right. Right? Like, if we, if we spoke that kind of language, there's a lot of people that have been harmed and misused and abused and terrorized by their sexuality. People who have felt like nobody wants to even talk to them because they're not pretty enough or thin enough. Or like, all the favoritisms and hatreds and gossiping. If we really, like, really, that's all crap and we do it and we need to repent and believe and maybe we, you could repent and believe too and we could have a healthier, less degraded life sexually together. People would be like, yeah, that's freaking right, man. I was, those are the words that a non-believer would use, right? And— but like, they would like, something would happen inside. They'd be like, yeah, that's, 
and there would be joy. They would know, like, that would be a better life together. And the fullness of Christ would lead to a fruitfulness, which would lead to a flourishing, right? That's not going to save anybody unless it's the song that makes them pay attention to the lyrics, which leads to conviction and belief and salvation. Come to sexuality conference. Okay, the second thing is um, in work and economics. I, I'm not going to go along on these, I, but I just want—they're just examples, right? They're examples of, of what we're doing. So in work, it's very easy to think of work as like the, a curse. It's like the thing you have to do would be so great if you could just play and sleep and do leisure all the time, and wouldn't that be fantastic? And um, but we, you know, we've got to fight it out at work, and we've got to claw our way up the ladder, and we've got to win, 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 or whatever you think work is. And, and part of it is because we tend to be materialists about work, too. But if you start theologically with God creating human beings to be productive and fruitful creatures, that God—he's created us with a kind of creativity that no other creature on planet Earth possesses. Listen, do beavers make dams? Yes, they do. But no beaver has ever made a strangely cubical Frank Lloyd Wright dam that all the other beavers were astounded with. Okay? All creatures who use tools or build things are basically using the same tools and building the same things they've done since they existed and started doing those things. Human beings develop what they build through creativity and transformation because there's a qualitative, functional, fundamental difference there. If you start by understanding that, then you can see that economy— is a system by which we all trade our capacities and productivities, our work and our fruitfulness with one another in the most efficient way possible. And you'll see that, that competition is a necessary check on our natural corruptions. We're all slothful. We're all greedy. We all want to make more money and produce less fruit. Like, we, we all want a better deal. And so competition is necessary for us not to fall into slothfulness and greed and pride so much that we destroy the system. But the system is really a system of cooperation. Right? Like, all the things necessary to make the pen you're writing with come from three different continents, thousands of people over thousands of miles, all cooperating completely freely to create this little thing for you to write with for 10 cents. And yeah, they've got to compete with the other companies or they'll all get lazy. But the thing that's beautiful about work and economy is the cooperation it produces. That's the main thing, and it allows us all to do different things. So people who are not super gifted have something they can do. People who are incredibly productive can have something to do. And then we can expand the productivity of the highly productive people so that it can create jobs for lots of other people. And all kinds of different people are giving to other people stuff they want because they have to buy it, which means that they would sacrifice something of their productivity for it. And the system works between people freely in an amazing way. And even though sometimes we get frustrated about our own economy, in the last 20 years, the number of people living on a dollar a day in the world has plummeted. The only place in the world that where economic growth year after year isn't normal is in sub-Saharan Africa. Everywhere in Asia, everywhere in northern Africa, in the middle, every, almost everywhere in the world, economic growth is the norm. People can feed their children, and they can buy medications, and they can send people to school. Now, it's not great for us. In America, we, we've, we've had to struggle because more people are in the game, and we can't come up with enough interesting things to sell and do fast enough because—
Billions of people are entering into the free exchange of fruitfulness with each other. And so, yeah, your 401k is going to suffer. So is mine. Like, it's, it ain't fun for us. But if we all engage our creativity, we can find employment for every image-bearing creature on planet Earth. And if we use competition to limit the amount of corruption that wants to come into that system, we can keep it healthy enough so that we can focus on the cooperating. It's a beautiful, amazing thing, right? Citizenship and community is similar. Forster uses this example in the book. In 1979, he was reading a comic book. He's like a college student. He's like, yeah, laugh at me. But it was a comic book, but it was right after the election of Margaret Thatcher in um, England. She was a Tory, and the Labor Party had been winning for years before that, and people were really upset about it. And so the the main character in the comic book was like complaining in his like local all-Labor voters bar about like, I can't believe the Tories won, this Margaret Thatcher, and like it's going to be terrible, and the whole England's going to end, and right? And he's like, who would vote for this person? And the bartender, who he'd known for like 20 years, was like, I voted for the Tories this time. And he like, he kind of blew up, and he's like, well, how could you possibly vote for the Tories? It's so terrible, right? And um, he's, he's like, and so he tries to convince him he was wrong. He's like, like, how could you, like, we're labor people, and like, we care about the working class. Those Tories are basically like rich folks, and like, how could you do that? And like, the guy's like, look, labor's been in charge for like 25 years. They're stinking up the place. It's been terrible. It's time for somebody new. I voted for Thatcher. Okay, like, I'm sorry, but like, I'm not going to say I was wrong, right? And so the guy finally goes to leave, and he's got to go to the bathroom because he's been, you know, drinking the bruise. And so he's like, well, fine. I'll see you later then, I guess. He's like, he's like, I got to use the bathroom before I go, but like, is the bathroom just for Tory voters now? Or like, you know, right? And the, the bartender goes, no, it's a Democrat bathroom. Anybody can go. And Forster said he remembers being a young man holding this comic book and understanding the idea. That there are loyalties that are deeper than other loyalties. There are unions that are deeper than—so the polis, the politics, the community is deeper than the faction, right? So the idea of Democrat small d, everybody should be able to vote their conscience, even if it isn't your conscience, is deeper than who they vote for. And Republican small r, that all people can be bound together under rights and law in a structure they all can agree upon so that minorities are protected by laws the majority can't change is more important than Republican big r. And if, if we have deeper commitments about the nature of our relations with each other, you can vote in a faction, you can hold the commi- commitments and convictions of a particular faction, but you won't be captured by that faction you won't get your loves out of order. You won't, you won't hate people because they vote for the wrong faction in your mind. And that right ordering of devotions and participations in community and who we should and shouldn't, like all of that can be reordered because the deepest for Christians is King Jesus. And so King Jesus can say, you live in a country worth living in and you can be a patriot. But he can also say, I care about the whole globe. So you could be an internationalist at the same time. And he can rightly order those two together and make you truly patriotic and truly international. And he can make you—you can vote Democrat, but you cannot hate Republicans. And you can, like, be open to learning stuff, and you can talk with other people, and you can realize that factions tend to corrupt naturally anyway. So why be possessed by one? Like, it can completely change the game of how you imagine. And you can realize—and you can realize that politics mattered a lot less than we think. Us helping each other in relationship to each other is much more important than we often think.
we shouldn't be drawn away in the materialist ideas. Listen, the, the eruption of the kind of faction that we are beginning to experience in America is from communism and fascism, which are both completely materialist views of the world. They're completely materialist. Because of that, they're completely power-centered, and they're completely about grabbing power. They are literally exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said, the Gentiles take power over each other. But you shouldn't behave that way. And we need to let Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, not just savior, reorder our understanding of sex and family, of work and economics, of community and politics and citizenship, and all of these things at a much deeper level. And then when we understand that we need to make room for him in our hearts to let him begin to change us so we can become the kind of people who everybody can see our progress. So we can sing the song of God so that we'll employ our songs and that the fullness of Christ that's growing in us can become a fruitfulness in our communities and can really produce a flourishing that's in the world so that people can see and taste the joy of God because he doesn't want them to stew in their curse from us. He wants his beauty, his truth to go out from us so that people who are already suffering under the curse feel themselves warmly invited. Right? If, if the world was going to sing a song, it might start with, the weather outside is frightful. <laughs> and we want them to come in. And we are meant to do that knowing that we live in exile. Knowing that God has done that on purpose. And knowing that we are sent into the world just as Jesus has been sent into the world. Father, we, we know that as we wait, we're not meant to be waiting around. And we want in our hearts to have the kind of love that is very uncommon and very, and very difficult for us. And, it's, and we want the mind of Christ. We want to have our, our hearts renewed spiritually. We want to see things that we haven't seen before. We want to be able to face things, even things that are very difficult for us. We want, we want, to, we want to be transformed. And we don't want to have an unnecessarily negative attitude towards people of the world. We want to act as though they're our brothers and sisters in humanity, even if they're not our brothers and sisters in faith yet, that they bear the image of God with us. It should be enough that they should be our creational countrymen, even if they're not yet members of the kingdom of God. Protect us from the evil one. Father, but send us rightly into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.